This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while because it's really unusual to have the two of us on these sides of the microphone. Uh, I have with me today Jake Tapper, who is, of course, an American journalist. He's an author. He's a cartoonist as well, which I hope we get to mention. He's the lead Washington anchor for CNN. He hosts the weekday television news show, The Lead, with Jake Tapper and co-hosts the Sunday morning show, State of the Union. And he also, as you might can see if you're watching this on YouTube, in his uh, background, he and I share a love for defeated presidential candidates. And he has, <laughs> he has the, the signs all up. And that's, those are my favorite biographies as well. But Jake is the author of a new book, and it's a political thriller called All the Demons Are Here. Jake Tapper, welcome to The Russell Moore Show. Thank you so much, Russell. It's great to be here. As you know, I'm a big fan of you and your work and your integrity, and it's uh, it's nice to talk to you. Well, likewise. I, I'm just wondering, I'm about midway through your book, and I'm wondering as I'm reading it, how on earth do you manage to write a book this uh, there, there are characters it spans all through American social history, political history, and is a thriller, murder mystery, everything else. How do you find the time to do that? 
when you're hosting a show every day and and on the weekend as well. I mean, do you have just a killer set of time management skills to be able to pull this off? I, I, I guess so. Um, I mean, what I do is when I'm in the middle of a writing project, I have a very specific way of going about it. I do an outline and I get feedback on the outline and I fill in a lot of the blanks of the outline and then I chop it up into chapters. And then I make a point of writing uh, every day at, for at least 15 minutes a day. Huh. Because everybody has 15 minutes in their schedule uh, that day. You know, you can do it over breakfast. You can do it over lunch. You can do it right before you go to bed, even if you have a busy day. And if that's all you do, by the end of the week, you have, that's an hour 45. That's at least two or three pages. So yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I, I just am very focused. I have to say writing these books is a lot of fun for me. I mean, it is work. Yeah. But it's a it's joyous. It's a good escape for me from some of the stress of my job. It's a good escape for me from some of the more depressing parts of my job, covering war, covering mass shootings and the like. Mm -hmm. The latest one, uh, All the Demons Are Here, takes place in 1977. And that's a wild year. Yeah. I was only eight, so I didn't remember a lot of it. But going back and researching and seeing all the crazy stuff that was going on with Evil Knievel, the yeah. superstar stuntman and Elvis dying and Studio 54 opening and the New York City blackout and the Son of Sam murders and the rise of tabloid journalism in New York. You had people joining cults, people seeing UFOs all over the country. I mean, it was just a wild year. So learning about it, writing about it was honestly a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I, as you're as you're moving through the book and and all of these characters and features show up, I thought to myself at one point, wow, there's a lot of dark themes coming in here, even though the book itself is not dark in terms of the way it's written. But then I thought, well, 1970s that that was a dark time. It was. <laughs> People were very disillusioned with the United States. I mean, the one-two punch of the Vietnam War and Watergate. And the lies that our leaders, Richard Nixon and all the president's men and all the generals, the lies that they were exposed to have been telling the public were depressing and people were upset. And I have two main characters in the book, Lucy and Ike. Lucy is an aspiring reporter. She's 22. Ike is her little brother. He's 20. He's an AWOL Marine. They're the kids of the main characters from my two previous books. And Ike is a stand-in for all of us, feeling disillusioned, not understanding the lies, not understanding the glibness with which um, leaders sent he and his fellow service members into battle. And I feel like we're kind of in a period like that today as well, a real disillusionment and mistrust of, of power. And and isn't it true? To, I mean, when you think about, for instance, I'm not going to give any spoilers here for people who are going to read the book, but the role that evil can evil plays. I mean, th yeah. there are there are times when I think if I had read this book 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have thought, oh, well, that's kind of a fantastic piece coming in here. But now, I mean, don't you every day when you're on your show, aren't there times when you think, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that All I would have time. never predicted it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it took, so the, the, I think the spoiler alert you're referring to is I have Evil Knievel launch a, a stunt presidential campaign. He runs for president and it's really just a stunt, but it's a way to talk about 
followers and leaders and rhetoric and mobs and and the like and it was fun to play with and and there is a a through line a dna showmanship a salesmanship dna that pt barnum evil can evil and donald trump all had and, and i don't mean it in a pejorative way they had right. all three of them have an ability to get attention which is no small thing. Any politician would love to have that ability, the ability to make news, the ability to to get followers and supporters. Yeah, but sometimes I'll be watching the news or watching speeches and I'll just not be able to understand. Like I would, I think just as somebody who like, my journalism is my full-time job, but you know, I dabble in, in fiction. And there are times that I'm covering something that I'll think, well, if I tried to do this as a fiction writer, yeah. nobody would believe it. Like, this is just a recent and very small example. Marjorie Taylor Greene gave a speech, a very conservative congresswoman from Georgia, gave a speech railing against Biden. But the way she went about attacking Biden largely was something that Joe Biden loved. I mean, and in fact, yeah. Joe Biden took, because she was like, he's trying to, continue in the vein of FDR and LBJ, and he wants to provide health care and education. And I mean, it was just, Joe Biden could have written, you know, 75% of her remarks. And it was just really remarkable just in terms of, in terms of how she speaks. I, I, I understand what she was trying to say. She yeah, was trying yeah. to say, government's too big. FDR made it too big. LBJ made it too big. We don't want federal control of education. We don't want federal control of this and that. You know, I, I get it. I know where she's coming from, but she's so in her own bubble. And this is one of the problems in American society today is everybody's in their bubble. She's so in her own bubble that the choir to whom she was preaching understood what she was saying. Yeah. But the, you know, 70% of the rest of us listening to her say, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. There's somebody wanting to make achievements in education. We need achievements in education. I, again, I know where she was coming from, but still. Well, you know, I think there was a time maybe in 2021 early on when a lot of us thought, well, maybe we're moving into a boring time now. Right. And, and meaning that is a good thing. Pandemic wrapping up, the Trump era over, and that this was going to be kind of a placid sort of time. That's not happening, is it? Well, first of all, people thought that Trump was going to go away. Yeah. Which I never thought. And obviously, given all the investigations and now indictments into his behavior, all the accountability, that obviously means that Mr. Trump has not disappeared, even if he had wanted to disappear. But he doesn't mm -hmm. want to disappear. He loves the attention. He's a showman. But then also, like, I mean, the, the nation is going through something of a a readjustment. I mean, some of it has to do with technology, like the way that we consume information. Everything is changing, how we read books, how we watch TV, how we get the news. And then in addition to technology changing, you know, people are, I think, increasingly going into their silos when it comes to only wanting to hear from people with whom they agree. Yeah. Um, and so you have, you know, media organizations making business decisions based on we're just preaching to the choir, so let's just get 100% share of the choir. Yeah, yeah. And then our politics is getting, in some ways, more divided. I mean, if you look at the bipartisan achievements of the Congress, actually, the last couple of years have been pretty good in terms of bipartisan achievements. But there is a, a tremendous amount of polarization that has to do with all sorts of things, including gerrymandering and fewer competitive House seats and the like. 
You talk about these silos. Uh, one of the questions I get all the time from Christians, and I'm talking about the mainstream Christians who really do want to get past all of this polarization, is to say, how do I know what's true and what's false? I mean, you, you think about the way the fake news language has been transformed in the past several years, but people are saying, how do I know if a source that I'm looking at is reliable, trustworthy, doesn't mean that it's perfect, but that it's not propaganda. Is there, is there a way that you could help somebody to determine that? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, the, the glib answer would be just watch my show. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm good. You can trust me. But the, the real answer is you need to be a, a sophisticated consumer of news and information. And that means multiple sources. And that means if there are sources that only ever report things that are favorable to one political party or the other, those are ones you should probably wonder about. I mean, if you mm. watch a channel in which Joe Biden does no wrong or a channel in which Donald Trump does no wrong, you're probably not getting the full story because there is no politician that blemishless, that blemish free. But I find that I consume a lot of different news from a lot of different sources and from a diversity. And by diversity, I mean diversity in every way, not just mm -hmm. racial or or ideological even, but also just what about religion? What about people who are spiritual? What are their views? Mm -hmm. What about foreign policy? What about geographic diversity? What about, am I reading about what people on the very progressive side of the aisle think? Not Democrats, capital D Democrats, but people who think Joe Biden is, is too corporate for their liking. Yeah. What about people who are populist on the right and their views? And I think when you get a really good steady diet of information from lots of sources, you get a pretty good idea of who can be relied upon for news, who can be relied upon for intellectually honest opinion, which mm -hmm. is very important because if you have opinion, but they're not intellectually honest, they're only sharing with you some information, they're leaving out other information, then that's a source you shouldn't trust. So. I think the wider array of a diet, the more diverse the diet, the, the better and smarter news consumer you can become. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. I heard you in an interview, I think it was on NPR, in which the question was, if in the middle of the lead, oh, yeah. Donald Trump called in and said, I want to talk, would you have him on or not? And you, you kind of wrestled with that for, for a minute or so. And I wonder, how, how do you make those decisions? And the reason I ask that is because I don't think that's just something for television journalists. Preachers deal with this all the time. How do I... 
how do I keep from simply giving myself over to the sensational when everybody else around me is trying to do the sensational and the outrageous? How do you check yourself while at the same time a presidential candidate, former president calling in in the middle of the show? That is newsworthy. Yeah. So I, Scott Simon really put you. I mean, you heard me wrestling with it because it was I, he did put me on the spot. It wasn't like a knee jerk answer. I ended up arriving at. I guess my inclination is to put him on air live, but I always reserve the the right to end the interview. But, you know, it is also true that Donald Trump says things, a lot of things that are not true, and also that he says reckless things that have been shown to, in the past, incite violence. And so you have to consider that when airing anything of his live, which, again, is not to say no. It just is something you have to think about. I'm, of course, named Jacob, and Jacob wrestled with an angel, and I mm -hmm. spent a lot of my days wrestling with a lot of these issues. And generally speaking, I don't do it alone. I have an amazing staff and a diverse slate of, of people in my inner circle, and we all, you know, every anchor and every show makes decisions for themselves, but I have a, a bunch of people, and we talk about these things. How do we want to go about doing this? What is the purpose we want to do? What are the competing considerations? How do we... You know, I interviewed Governor DeSantis, mm -hmm. and before the interview, the news about Donald Trump broke the news that he had been alerted from Jack Smith, the special counsel, that he was likely going to be indicted, that he was told he was a, a target of an investigation, and uh, he would likely be indicted. And we had a conversation with several people on my staff, executives at CNN. Okay, I have to ask Governor DeSantis about this. Where do we put it in the interview? How do we ask about it? How many questions? Like, we think a lot about this stuff. And, you know, when I'm live on air, it's often just me making a decision in a split second. But in a perfect world, we can have these discussions during a commercial break, or somebody says in my ear, well, we think X, Y, Z, what do you think? And I can go like this on air and nobody knows that I'm nodding to my executive producer. But it's better if it's a, if it's a consensus discussion at the very least. Yeah. What, what about the role of religion in American life right now? I mean, one of the interesting things that I've seen just in the past couple of weeks, there was a, a family forum, a social conservatives, evangelicals in Iowa featuring a presidential candidates. Tucker Carlson was the one chosen to do the moderating. Yeah. Most of the questions and the crowd enthusiasm, they weren't about the typical religious right sorts of issues. They were about anti-Ukraine, pro-Russia sort of language. That was the red meat being thrown out. And a figure such as Mike Pence not receiving a lot of enthusiasm in that room. Have we reached the point where the religious right is kind of gone as a relevant factor when it comes to setting the agenda of the issues? Uh, it's such a complicated question, and of course, I don't speak for the religious right, but I will say right. this will be my seventh presidential election, and I've been covering politics for uh, for a long time. And I remember there, uh, there was in Iowa Family, Faith, and Freedom Forum in 1999 that I attended as a reporter. It's where I met Jeff Zeleny, who is now a colleague here at CNN, but at the time he was with the Des Moines Register. And what they were talking about was abortion, gay rights, and I think pornography. I think those were the three, as I recall, those were the three topics that they were most interested in. Hmm. Again, I'm going by memory. Um, and 
that made a certain sense to me at the time, you know, that these are social issues that are important to these individuals who are conservative evangelical Christians and who care deeply about the Bible and about faith and the like. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm Jewish, I have a different faith tradition, but I, you know, one of the things about being somebody of faith and uh, of, of a minority religion is that you, well, at least I come to, I come to the table when it comes to religion as having an open mind in terms of respecting faith and, and understanding people have different points of view and the like. And that made more sense to me. And I guess that, and I know you've lived through this much more than I have, but I guess the way that evangelical conservative leaders have embraced Donald Trump, who I don't think it's unkind to say does not have a particularly strong faith tradition in his personal life, mm -hmm. but certainly delivered on a lot of promises that evangelical conservatives cared deeply about, such as the, the U.S. Supreme Court and the eventual overturning of Roe v. Wade. I have found it uh, interesting and also sometimes difficult to understand. Not unlike, it's not a direct parallel, but, it's, but not unlike the way I found feminist leaders in the 90s embrace of Bill Clinton similarly confounding. I got that he delivered laws and priorities, policy priorities to professional feminists and, and those who identified as feminists, but also like his personal treatment of women, it seemed like something that was overlooked in a way that I didn't fully understand. Yeah. And I think that's how I, I kind of view the evangelical conservative political community embrace of Donald Trump. I don't fully understand it. Is there really no compunction here about how this individual has lived his life. Cause I'm look, I'm not running around telling people to I'm holier than now, or I'm some paragon of virtue, but I mean, <laughs> I've certainly yeah, lived a yeah. life of more virtue than certain others. Yeah. Wait, I mean, you, you look around at how 2016, 2020, so many churches divided, so many families divided, their friendships of 25, 30 years that are yeah. gone uh, as a result of this political moment. Do you think 2024 is going to be like that? Or have we already kind of burned over and sorted out in ways that this will be almost, if not routine, have, have we become numb to all the division? No, I think it's going to be worse. You do. I do. And I'll tell you why. I think it's going to be worse because, because I think the social issues are, are really front and center in a way that they, they weren't even necessarily in 2016 or 2020. You know, the, the, the trans issue is, is really mm -hmm. uh, one that conservatives and progressives talk quite a bit about and that is very divisive and while I think there is room for a nuanced conversation of on athletics, you know, it's an, uh, this is not, I'm not giving a personal view here. I'm saying this is, this is a nuanced middle ground that I think probably a lot of people could, right. could get together on like, you know, along the lines of when it comes to competitive women's athletics, these rules really should be in place just for fairness to the girls and women. Cause we care about girls and women achieving the society, but Everybody should be able to live in dignity and with uh, compassion. And 
we are all God's children, et cetera. Like there is, there is something there, but that's not how yeah. this is being discussed. And then, you know, there used to be in our politics kind of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink by Republicans that, yes, we want to overturn Roe v. Wade, but like wink, wink, it's never going to happen. Don't worry about it. This shouldn't be a motivating force because mm-hmm. Republicans knew that generally speaking, the public, according to polling, supports abortion rights. They might support some restrictions, but they support abortion rights in general. They think it's a personal decision that people should be able to make. But that is gone because of the Dobbs decision. So now that is actually prominent. So, I I mean, I just think there's going to be a lot of, I think it's going to be even more divisive than ever before when it comes to social issues and these very divisive issues that that get talked a lot about in uh, in communities of faith. Yeah, yeah. And and do you think the prosecutions of a former president are going to contribute to that. I mean, if, you, if we talked about the 1970s, Richard Nixon and Watergate, it seems so tame <laughs> by comparison now with what the news is all the all the time. Well, what if he hadn't been pardoned, right? I mean, that's if, if Ford had not pardoned Nixon. Right, that's true. Would there have ultimately been criminal charges against Richard Nixon? There certainly might have been. I don't know. And there are those, yeah. including John Dean, who thought at the time, well, this is a good decision by Gerald Ford so that we can all move on and the country can move on, who have now changed their minds because they now think like that enabled a certain lawlessness when it comes to Donald Trump. I don't know if it will be as divisive because it seems to me like these are just factual matters. And, you know, when you talk about the 1970s, I mean, one of the reasons why writing about 1977 in All the Demons Are Here was interesting to me is because you had a a uh, Democratic president perceived as as feeble in the White House, perceived as weak in the White House, and a Republican Party kind of trying to figure out what to do next, whether mm-hmm. to move past Richard Nixon and how to move past Richard Nixon. And we're not in that situation. We are, you know, the parallels are there. But in addition, we're not in that situation because, I mean, what if Richard Nixon, he'd already run for two terms, so he couldn't have done it anyway. But what if there was some possibility of Richard Nixon returning? And th- th- I mean, that's where we are right now. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You have to, in writing this book, inhabit 
some very different characters, very different ideas uh, and, and motivations behind them. It seems to me that's what you have to do every day, doing journalism as well, just in a different way. I, I heard you once talk about Judaism, your spiritual background, as actually being helpful to you in looking at multiple different viewpoints at one time. Uh, what can what can American Christians learn from American Jews, do you think? Well, I wouldn't put it that way, but I'll just tell you, I, I'm not going to say this is what mm-hmm. Christians should be learning from us, but I'll tell you. So I went to a religious school, not a yeshiva. It wasn't Orthodox, but it was grade six through 12. And we learned Hebrew and we learned Bible in addition. It was a dual curriculum in addition to English, history, math, et cetera. And what I mean by that how my faith tradition has helped me as a journalist and also just as a citizen is there's a big tradition of debate in Judaism. I mean, people have probably heard of the Talmud, but they don't necessarily know what the Talmud is. But the Talmud is made up of different books of rabbis arguing and debating what does this in the Bible mean and how should we interpret it? Mm -hmm. And the arguments could get quite fierce. I mean, I say rabbis, but some of these guys had tremendously huge egos. And these these are not yeah. these are not modest, sweet clergy like yourself, Russell. I mean, these were these were <laughs> these were like superstars of of their day, of the you know, of the Middle Ages, like having fierce debates about what these things mean. And what was interesting about that was just establishing a tradition and understanding that argument is not inherently bad, it's actually good. And de- I mean polite argument. Mm. And debates are good. And the other thing is, and just being Jewish and being in a religious minority group, is that my instinctive reaction to, I'm like, for instance, I remember covering Mitt Romney running in 2008 and 2012, and there was a lot of anti-Mormon prejudice from the uh, mm-hmm. evangelical community against him. And I, I didn't understand it. And it makes you realize that all of our faith traditions to other people from other faiths look weird. All of them do. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. inherently, I'm not saying that they all are. I'm just saying like a Mormon doesn't necessarily understand what a Muslim believes and a Jew doesn't necessarily understand what a Catholic believes. And mm-hmm. But just having an inherent respect for like, look, these are belief systems. And as a journalist and as a human, starting from a position of respecting it. Yeah. They don't understand my faith tradition and that's okay. And by the way, that also meant that as a Jew, I'm not particularly offended when Christians say that non-Christians, including me, are going to hell. That's what your faith tradition teaches. I mean, I I don't agree, but it doesn't offend me. That's what your faith teaches, not just Jews, but anybody who hasn't accepted Jesus. That just also means I start from a position of respect. So yeah. I, I think those are the two main ways that my my faith has has influenced me, not just as a journalist, but just as a citizen. Respecting debate and and just having a knee jerk respect for whatever people's faiths are. And as a novelist, the book is All the Demons Are Here by Jake Tapper. Check him out uh, on the lead with Jake Tapper every day. And uh, Jake, thanks so much for taking time to do this conversation. It's always a real pleasure talking to you, Russell. Hopefully we'll have you on the show sometime soon. Thanks. Take care. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. 
Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. Associate Producers, Abby Perry and Azure Phelps. Director of Operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio Engineering is provided by Dan Phelps. Our video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.